Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tom and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In this episode, the history of vermouth, the fortified wine that James Bond just couldn't do without in his vodka martinis. We discuss the history of modern vermouth, its ancient predecessor, and its arrival into the cocktail industry. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Dish. I hope you're hungry. No, actually, don't be hungry this week. I hope you're parched because we're going to be wetting your whistle with a classic drink this week. Yes, uh, this is one of our feature episodes where we discuss the history of one specific food, but specifically in this episode, it's a specific drink, which is vermouth. Vermouth? 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 Depends, but in English, it's vermouth. I think most people know what that is. Yeah, we like to pronounce that. We'll explain exactly what it is as we go through for those people who are not as initiated and are learning something completely new today. In some countries, vermouth has been frowned upon to some extent because it's seen as a little bit of a, uh, just a mixer in cocktails or as like some cheap tramps drink. Is it? Yeah, well, actually, I read this article in Germany. It's very much still seen as a bit of a tramps drink and it's only just getting a renaissance now. And getting hipster again. Didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. In England, it's like, if you just drink it straight, it's a bit of a like, oh, it's fortified wine. It's really cheap. Is it kind of like how gin's had its revival? Like, it was mother's ruin and it was the thing that you wouldn't drink for all these years. And now it's hip again. So, vermouth is having a similar revival. Yeah. It's just, it it used to be a cheap drink at one point. And now it's becoming uh, gentrified, just like everything else, I suppose. So obviously, some countries uh, like Italy and Spain have not had that reputation for it at all. And it has been continuously a popular drink since its inception. But we'll be talking about exactly where it was first created and how it got created as we go through this episode. Yeah, of course, I suppose a lot of people also associate vermouth with uh, a vodka martini because you have to use martini, which is a brand of vermouth in order to make a vodka martini. And that's what James Bond used to drink. So, so you know. that's not trashy at all. No, I know. But like just drinking it straight. like It is pre- actually when it comes down to it, even though he wears a suit, he is kind of trashy. Let's but be he's honest. drinking it like in a fancy cocktail glass in a fancy casino or something. That's classy. But just like getting a bottle of vermouth and just like taking Dr- drinking it in the park. glasses of it. <laughs> drinking it in the park. Well, this is just what I'm saying. I just read this because it's in the whole fortified wine category. It's not actually a spirit. That's one of the first things we need to learn. I, it's controversial, isn't it? But there's various articles with people talking about that being like, nah, this was not a classy drink apart from when it's used in a cocktail. Like to be drunk by itself, not a classy drink. But in some countries, it is definitely still considered a classy drink and has never stopped being so. All right. So, yes, many listeners, I said they probably heard of Martini because that's a super famous vermouth. And you, yeah, it's not just the cocktail. It's also the mixer. It's actually the name of one of the people who invented that particular brand of vermouth. Might have heard of Cinzano as well. These are both Italian brands. But is vermouth actually originally Italian or did they just popularize it? That's something we're going to be figuring out. Well, I'm guessing it's no. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's <laughs> you always said no, it. It's always it? no. <laughs> it's, uh, it may or may not be no. Uh, it's actually one of those complicated stories where it's yes and no. Just because, you know, we just ruined the end of the story already. So it's a bit of yes and a bit of no. <laughs> I'm sure people were dying with anticipation until yeah, I ruined yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, they, would, they would never have guessed. No. Anyway, what is the difference between like Italian vermouth and other types of vermouth? Uh, lots of things we're going to talk about in this episode to do with this famous fortified wine. But first of all, before we get started, just a little bit of housekeeping. We are, we mentioned at the end of the last episode, the Madrid episode, that we are dropping the podcast back to one episode every two weeks rather than weekly because we have lots of other work commitments. Sorry about that. Life pushes on and uh, we can't commit all our time to podcasting, unfortunately. We would like to. It, uh, yeah, summer has been a busy time, so we definitely can't be doing one episode every week because it actually takes us like eight to 20 hours when you bring in like doing the research, uh, writing an article to accompany the episode, recording the episode. I mean, just sitting here and recording is like 45 minutes or more. Buying the wine, drinking <laughs> the wine. Yep, going to Italy and Spain to drink vermouth. Well, that's the fun part. That is the fun part. <laughs> Editing the episodes, producing the episodes, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it can take like 20 hours just to put one episode together, especially the more complicated ones they take longer than that so it's pretty crazy yeah so every second week we'll be bashing one out and you guys can uh, enjoy that still every second monday we'll be coming to your podcast networks see and actually our original plan with the podcast because we knew we wouldn't have time to do it weekly or we assumed we wouldn't we're actually we were going to do like 12 episodes all at once like once a year like put a lot of work in in advance and then just release all 12 at once. You were going to do it seasonally. Yeah, yeah, like like a season. So you get the whole season. You could listen to all of it. But then well, we sort of... We really we were, enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, we like doing it. And we were looking at how the stats worked and how people listen. And it's like, well, once people have started listening, if you then stop for eight months, you sort of lose a lot of listeners and it's hard to get them back. So it's easier to like consistently release episodes. I know, there's a whole bunch of podcasts I haven't listened to because they did it seasonally. And then when they came back, I was like, yeah, but I'm listening to something else now. Yeah, exactly. So just having it constantly going out there, even if it's once every two weeks rather than once a week, we figure that's probably going to work better. We'll see how it goes, see what happens. So that's the plan. And because of that, we're getting rid of the season numbers and it's going to be episode numbers from now on, which means this is episode 37. Ooh. Yeah, we're just ripping the band-aid off. Seasons are gone. There's, we're going to keep them there for all the old episodes because we mention things by season episode number occasionally. And we don't want to go back and edit yeah, at all. We don't, we don't want to go back and edit at all. We don't want to confuse everybody. But uh, this is now episode 37. Next week will be episode 38. Well, in two weeks time. It will be episode 38, so not next week at all. But um, yeah, we'd love to get back to the point of doing them weekly. But the only way we can really do that is if the listenership grows really fast and we get loads more people listening and then we can get some advertising on here so we can make money or we can get people like our listeners joining our Patreon account and doing that sort of thing, which we're not pushing heavily at the moment, but we probably will in the future once we've got more listeners to be awesome. So the number one way you can help us right now is just by listening to all the episodes, obviously. Telling, and telling a friend. Telling your friends to start listening if they're your foodie friends who like this sort of stuff. And subscribe and leave a five-star review. Uh, that's pretty much it. And that's yeah. going to make a lot of difference to us getting back to doing weekly, which would be really cool if we can get to that point again. Yeah, that'd be super sweet. Speaking of sweet. All right. <laughs> How's yep. that for a transition back into vermouth? Yeah. All right. Let's get into vermouth. So, yeah, first of all, for those who have not really got a full concept of vermouth, it is a fortified wine blended with an interesting mix of botanicals. So, it's a it's bit like, like gin. It's a bit like wine and gin had a, a sweet little baby. Ah. Although sometimes it can be, it can be dry or sweet. So that, well, no, yeah, no one wants to have a dry baby. I mean, you want your baby to be dry most of the time. 
(laughs) (laughs) Did people just want damp babies? I don't don't know. No, I think that's what people actively aim to not have. No, I assumed people wanted dry babies. All right. uh, Some famous vermouths like martini, often seen as a bit of a bitter aperitif. Though some, as I said, are dry, some are sweet, but that sort of bitterness balances differently and some of them are sort of quite bitter. But some people love that bitterness. I like it when it's a little bit less bitter. That's just my personal preference. It's also, as we mentioned at the start, a well-known ingredient in famous cocktails like the vodka martini and the Manhattan Mm -hmm. and some others as well. It's in quite a few different cocktails. Unlike the very commercialized and popular martini and uh, Italian brands, the vermouth in Spain, for example, which is what we were talking about in last week's episode when we went to Madrid two weeks ago, it's more of an artisanal sort of drink in Spain than it is in Italy, where it's just lots of mass-produced. I mean, people may make some of their own, but the brands are famous, whereas in Spain, it's like you can go to vermouth bars. Yeah, it's a little bit more sort of homemade-ish in Spain, I felt. A lot of different bars make their own blend. Yeah. So they get in the wine, and they put the botanicals in themselves, and it's their vermouth, and you've got to go to their bar to drink it. Yeah. So, so one bar you might like, and the next one you're like, no, nah, not my cup of tea. So you've got to give a few a try before you find your faves. So yeah, beyond the famous martini, there's actually lots of different ways to drink vermouth. So if that's only the only sort of way that you've experienced it, don't think that's what vermouth is. It's, it's many different things to many different people in many different countries. I think most people, well, I mean, I didn't even realize it wasn't martini. So I think there's a lot of people out there going, I didn't even know it was in martini. That's great. Martini is vermouth. I know, I didn't know The cocktail know is that. named after the brand. I didn't know that. So there you go, learn something new. We'll talk a little bit about the cocktails at the end of the episode, but let's get on to the actual history of the fortified wine itself. Uh, the vermouth and the word vermouth actually comes from the German word vermut, which means wormwood. It's like vermwood, like wormwood. <laughs> it's almost the same sounding because English and German have a lot of crossover with with word sounds, where we got them from. Wormwood is one of the most important and traditional botanicals that is included in the drink. And so it was just like the wormwood drink that had wormwood in it. Ah. And that's how it got its original name. Um, The word, well, that's how it got its modern name. Let's say that's the name that we have today. The original history goes back a bit further. The word was taken into both French and Italian to become vermouth. Uh, Also, instead of using wormwood, in their own language, they just used the interpretation of the German word, which was quite interesting. So they didn't just go, well, it's got wormwood in, let's use the Italian word for wormwood. No, they took the German they went, eh. one on board. And I could never, I couldn't find out exactly why they did that. Supposedly, well, some people reckon it's because the Italians were like, oh, it's fancy, it's a foreign thing. If we use a foreign word, people would be uh, like, oh, because it's for the upper classes. Oh, that makes Not sense. that Italians speak like that. But uh, yeah. So I think that, they do, but in an Italian yeah. way. These are for the upper classes. Yeah. No, that's wrong. It's going to be posh Italian accents, I can't right? do posh Italian accents. Um, yeah, so that's one theory, but there's not like a written story guaranteeing that that's true. But that's roughly what probably happened. They just went, all right, we're going to take that word, and it sort of just spread from there. So yeah, the name is based on German, but was it a German invention? As you're probably guessing, no, it was not. It was not a German invention. Apparently, they just took the word. However, was it an Italian invention? See, I'm messing around with you here, was it? Was it? I'm yeah. making it sound like it is. Uh, let's look really deep into the history of this. To get started with this, we need to decide on a definition of vermouth, as is often the case, because some things, were they vermouth or were they proto-vermouth or, uh-huh. or not? 
To be similar to what we see as vermouth today, the definition I'm going with is it is that a grape wine is infused with botanicals, specifically wormwood being one of those. That's how simple So it's got to have wormwood in it. Yeah, in order it has to, to be, be grape wine. Grape wine, yeah. So this rules out, and this is really crazy in the research, it rules out the most ancient precursor that I could possibly find, which is a botanical alcoholic beverage found in Changjichu tombs in Henan province, China, from 1050 BC. We've been in that area. Yeah, but we it was drink that drink. in 1050 BC. That's crazy. But it doesn't have the wormwood. It's... Um, it's just a botanical mix with rice wine. So there's no oh, grapes and there's no wormwood. <laughs> so they've actually found this pot that was so well sealed that when they opened it up, there was still like the remnants of this liquid That's inside. It's insane that they found stuff from that long ago. Well, the, the outside of the pot, the, like, the lid of the pot had sort of got rusty and it literally fused with the main part of the pot. Yeah. So l- there was no air getting in at all. And it Did was no way to it? evaporate. Did so- someone drink it? No, I don't think it was like palatable. It was I mean, just, like, even there was bear, some liquid. I mean, you know, you got to, I mean, these archaeologists have got to have a sense of humor, right? And they'll be like, Ted, give you 20 bucks. Just, just a little, little lick. I'd want a bit more than that to die. <laughs> so yeah, this rules out any of those sort of ancient beverages that weren't made with wine. Real wine, not rice wine. Uh, rice wine we said is grapes. Yeah, it's got to be grapes. Rice wine. I don't see rice wine as wine. I it's don't even. It's totally different. It, it's a rice beverage. I don't know it's, if I call it wine. It's alcoholic hell. <laughs> it, it is. It is brain death. <laughs> so this also this definition rules out because some drinks. So there are some ancient drinks they found where it's a mix of herbs with sugar that then are fermented to make a beverage. So what we're specifically saying here is it is wine that has been made in the way that wine is made mm-hmm. and then afterwards infused with the herbs and the botanicals. Yeah. So it can't just be like you mixed a whole bunch of stuff up and later you found some gunk and drank it. That doesn't count. So for the original pre-vermouth drink, because it wouldn't have been called it back in those days, uh, the precursor to, which is actually quite similar to the modern style, we can actually credit Greek philosopher and medical scientist Hippocrates. Hey, hey! Quite famous. We've mentioned him in episodes before. Of course, he was massively famous. He was up famous. to a lot. He's the same dude who invented the Hippocratic Oath. He's a Everyone busy knows man. about that, right? So, yeah, and this was back in the 4th and 5th century BC. It was sometime around that. And he actually documented taking wine and infusing wormwood and a selection of other herbs and botanicals into it to make a drink that could be drunk as a digestive after a meal to help with, like, digestion or with stomach disorders. Yeah. Because, actually, even back then, they knew that wormwood was a natural product that helped with problems with the stomach. So he was like, oh, this already does good stuff for the stomach. Let's turn it into a digestive by mixing it with some wine and making it a little sweeter or whatever. So there you go. There was actually, it was basically the same thing, but with a different blend of botanicals. Yeah. Almost exactly the same product in 4th, 5th century BC. Crazy. That is pretty crazy. And from that point, herb-infused wines actually went on to become really popular across the whole Roman Empire. So it was a hit. Like, yeah. He was like, try this. And people were like, mm, that's nice. Uh, not just because it's a digestive, but because it's good. And some sources even suggest that that specific type of wine during the Roman Empire period was called Hippocratic wine. 
Mm. So, it's like it, his name has really been associated with this for a very long time. And as international trade grew around the Mediterranean, etc., new spices were brought in from India. So, like they were trading further and further afield and they were testing these new spices in the infusion. People were like, well, putting stuff in wine is good. Let's try and do a bit more of that. Is that um, how they ended up with like mulled wine and stuff as well? It probably is actually. Um, that's pretty much where we're going with this next bit uh-huh. is uh, something similar to mulled wine was happening. So by the 14th century, they were making an infused wine with cinnamon and it became really, really popular across Europe. So Italy was exporting this. Obviously, it wasn't the Roman Empire by the 14th century. It wasn't even Italy in the 14th century, but the bit that is Italy now was exporting this all around Europe, even to like the UK and stuff. And they were making like this spiced wine with cinnamon. Uh, so, it wouldn't necessarily have been heated at that time. I couldn't find that out, but it was a spiced wine. And the historic name for this spiced wine was Hippocras, relating to Hippocrates, uh, because not just because it's sort of similar to the wine that he inspired and everyone had been making for 2000 years, but also because when they made it, they put all the spices in, they left them to sit in the wine, and then they filtered them out using this thing called Manicum Hippocraticum, the Hippocratic Sleeve. It's basically a filter that he invented in the 4th or 5th century, and they were still using it in the 14th he century. He's a busy man. He's a crazy dude. He's, you know, he's got some serious legacy going on there. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff in a very short amount of time. Well, actually, he lived to like 90 years old. Well, it wasn't that short amount of time then. No, he did all in right. those days. Especially for those days. Wowza. Yeah, yeah. But those great, hey, Mediterranean diet, what can you say? <laughs> and of course, because he, he was someone who actually had money. Yeah, so yeah. People so he did was stuff doing all right for himself. He was off doing science experiments and medical tests and everyone else was doing all the hard work. Well, not that I'm saying that it's not hard work. Just different sort of work. Well, he wasn't toiling in a he field. He wasn't toiling, yes, and he was being reasonably well fed and drinking all of his special beverages that were helping his stomach digestion and his health. So, you know, obviously they were. I'm worked. sure he would have made some special beverages that didn't do so well for his health, but, you know, he balanced <laughs> it out in the end. So, yeah, it's almost certain that, that the name for that drink in the 14th century is because of him. So, you know, it's like this total full story from the 4th, 5th century all the way through to the 14th and, and onwards. And it was also probably because, well, if you've got a load of wine that you made and some of the batches weren't as good as some of the others, it's like, well, how do we make this more pleasant to drink? Yeah, because you don't want to waste it. So aside from being a medicinal thing, or at least conceived as a medicinal thing, it's like, well, hang on, we've got all this bad wine, let's fix it by putting spices in it. Oh, that's clever. So it's, yeah, it's also a good capitalist trick. Yeah. We make some more money out of the bad wine and sell it for even more money than the original wine would have cost. <laughs> Which is pretty crazy. But, all right, so our story moves on from all of these uh, different products that are similar to vermouth to 1786, somewhere around the city of Turin, possibly in Turin, which is in North Italy near the Alps, was a guy called Antonio Bendetto Carpano. He popularized modern vermouth when he blended white wine with wormwood and about 30 other botanicals. So, obviously, the theory behind these sorts of drinks was already there, but he actually sat down and called it vermouth and started serving it. And the drink was a really rapid success. And 
And by rapid in those days, I mean like within like 10, 15 years or something like that. Of course. So, yeah. You know, viral back in the 17th century or whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. 15 15 years for a viral thing. It works. The drink gained really rapid success. And some sources claim that the Italian aperitivo, which we've talked about back in the Bologna episode, Mm -hmm. season one, episode 10, was actually invented due to vermouth's popularity because people wanted a little snack to go with this sort of slightly bitter interesting botanical wine. So that's why it sort of, they both became popular at roughly the same time. The success led to Carpano's bar apparently becoming open 24 hours in those days. Hey, they like to party. Yeah, I'm like, this is supposed to be aperitivo. It's 24-hour aperitivo. Well, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Where was that? Was that still in Turin? Apparently in Turin. Because it it was very popular in Milan as well. Yeah, it spread all around North Italy and it spread into France as well from there because Turin is very close to the border. See, because would you be so surprised if you said it was like a 24-hour bar selling vermouth in Paris? You'd be like, nah, those Paris, they like the Parisians, they like to party. But for Turin, you're like, ooh, wow, 24 hours. Well, I just thought because, because it's an aperitivo drink, you'd have one or two with some snacks. An aperitivo, if we didn't, if you haven't heard that episode or know about aperitivo, it is like a pre-dinner snacks with a drink, basically, in Italy. Yeah, but how many times did we go to aperitivo when we were in Italy and never actually made it to dinner? Yeah, because you can get a lot of food. But yeah. I'm, I'm sure the rich and wealthy of Turin in 1786 were quite happy to overeat constantly, because if they could afford it, Isn't they did it. Isn't it the famous thing that they went and had, like, the spew rooms and they'd go eat a whole bunch and then go have a little... Go have a little power spew. That and then was they'd come uh, the Roman Empire. It's like to eat like a Roman. Ah. But maybe they were still doing that. I don't know. Yeah, you know, a little vom here and there. But yeah, so this was super successful. And of course, not surprisingly, lots of people started copying the idea very quickly because it had done so well. So yeah, moves into Milan. Although I know Milan questioned that mm-hmm. maybe they invented aperitivo. They'll have to go back and listen to the episode, won't but they? But there's definitely no references saying that Milan invented vermouth, only that maybe they invented aperitivo after vermouth turned up. Yeah. In Milan. Who knows? Not quite sure on that. So, yeah, the question at this point is really, did this guy Carpano just introduce the name? Because so many versions of this drink already seem to be being made for a couple of thousand years. I mean, sold around Europe with and different spices. And we have spices. no understanding of why he decided to take the German name for Wormwood. As I said before, he knew it had Wormwood in it and he knew that the German word... And he just wanted to make it something different. And it was like, yeah, it's like this is an exotic drink. If you you do go back and listen to that episode, one of the key reasons why he did make vermouth really popular was he was the king of marketing. Yep. He was so good at marketing. So it wouldn't surprise me if that's exactly what his spin was. Yeah. He's just like, no, this is a fancy foreign product, or at least it's got a fancy foreign name. So why not try it? That does seem to be where the evidence points, but there's no like specific written reference or him confirming that saying like in his journal that, yes, I came up with this as a marketing thing and it was awesome. No. So I don't know. But it seems like it's really hard to say that he invented vermouth. He just popularized a drink and renamed it. Yeah. He branded vermouth in a new way. Rip, pivot and jam. Oh, and nailed it. Yeah. Totally nailed it. So that's probably where I'm seeing it. He, He created the phenomenon of drinking vermouth and it being a much more popular drink. Although it was already popular, but like being this like aperitivo drink and being a more fancy drink. Yeah. uh, Rather than just an affordable or whatever sort of drink. So, yeah, he had a big part to play. Now, his original vermouth was quite sweet and it was designed to appeal specifically to the ladies so they could enjoy a vermouth and the gentleman would enjoy a nice glass of wine, a drier glass of wine with with their aperitivo. 
So that was the very original version that he did. In 1813, it moved over to French vermouth, and the first one was created in France by Joseph Nouilly, and he created a dry vermouth. So he actually went, all right, I'm going to do something a little bit different, use whatever wine I've got in my region, just in France. I'm going to get some white dry wine, and I'm going to make the vermouth out of that. Very soon after that, the uh, famous Cinzano that we, we've probably, most people have heard of, uh, it started in 1816. They were also based in Turin. And very conveniently for them, uh, their business probably started in 1816 because Capano, the original inventor, died in 1815. And he'd had such sway. I mean, like the courts, the royal courts of Turin were drinking this drink and were like praising it in, in various texts. Apparently, they're like, they loved it. So if he'd started this business before Capano died, he'd have probably had a whole bunch of heavies coming around being like, sorry, mate, this is our, yep. this is our business. Capano's in charge of this. But as soon as Capano I mean, died- listen, I mean, come on, it? listen to that name, Capano. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we know who he, he was involved with. He had, some, he had some cousins. He was connected. Yeah. He was connected with the king, the yep. queen. But as soon as he died, that was it. Like literally the next year, Cinzano's out there producing- vermouth in Turin to compete. So, yeah, not a coincidence in my opinion. Definitely very much planned. Although some vermouth is made with red wine as a base, these ones that I've been talking about, the original ones, are supposedly all made with white wine, and it was actually caramel that was used to colour them. So, ah. it, so, like, they could have been artificially sweetened when they were fortified, or it could have been a sweeter white wine that was used. But the most famous original red wine-based vermouth arrived in 1863 when, and this is when Martini enters the fray. Martini and Rossi, it's called in America because of some copyright thing, because of, of the cocktail. Because the cocktail was invented in America before they'd got the copyright for the vermouth. The Martini cocktail took the name. Oh. And when they like, were fully trying to copyright Martini in there, they wouldn't let them apparently. <laughs> so they had to call it Martini and Rossi because Rossi was his business partner. How weird. Well, there's crazy stories like that all around the yeah. world. Everywhere else it's just called Martini. Yeah. But in America, apparently it's called Martini and Rossi. But I have heard of Martini and Rossi, like so both names, but same I didn't thing. realize it was the same thing. Yeah. Just the American marketed brand. And so, yeah, they popularized this red wine based Martini Rosso, the red martini. And there, I mean, the martini is now the biggest brand of vermouth in the world. So it worked out pretty well. And of course, this was aided a lot by the Martini cocktail. And because like that name just getting around. And obviously, as we mentioned, James Bond, like that sort of marketing, you can't, you can't even pay for that sort of marketing. It's amazing. Uh, I used to uh, quite enjoy a watermelon martini. Oh. Mm, that was quite- not, a, not an apple teeny? No, that was, uh, that was Gavin. <laughs> Gavin loved his apple martinis. That's the dude from Scrubs. Liked his apple teenies. Did he? Yeah. I don't even remember that. Is he called JC or something? I can't remember what his name is now. JC, that was Zach Braff. Zach Braff. Yeah, he was JC. Yeah, he loved the apple teeny. Ah. Everyone was used to take the piss out of him for, right. <laughs> for enjoying uh, a camp drink. Oh, scrubs. I love scrubs. The martini cocktail and vermouth cocktails in general. And this is why the copyright sort of thing happened, because they were all invented in the USA. Everyone in Europe, everyone in the Mediterranean was drinking vermouth as a drink. Just straight. Not as a cocktail. Yeah. It was a sip and drink for their aperitivo. And 
The first recorded document of any martini-based cocktail being made is from 1868, when the famous Delmonico's restaurant in New York, which is still there today, I heard about that one quite a few times, never been there, I'm going to go there one day maybe, um, they served it at a luncheon for a women's literary club. <laughs> oh, yes, make this little gin, gin and martini cocktail, something like that. Um, so... The origin of the actual martini cocktail itself, though, as opposed to just a cocktail that had martini in it, but the actual James Bond type drink, although it would have originally been with gin rather than vodka. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the vermouth, but I'm not a massive fan of martini cocktails either. No. And anything with gin in. Vodka martini, I would probably enjoy a bit more. But gin martini, I don't really love I gin I once that went much. old school and just ordered like a dirty martini from a bar thinking like, oh, because I'm like, I love olives and I love martinis. And salt. And salt. And so I was like, I'm going to order a dirty martini. And yeah, they totes made it with gin because I didn't realize in my young 20-something state that it wasn't just vodka. <laughs> it's like, what? They make gin martinis? That's the original. I know, it's the original. And it was like the worst thing I'd ever tasted because it's, it's literally like the olive, like the brine. They, they, yeah. they put in the extra... Br- <laughs> <laughs> it's like mixing a really bitter fortified wine with a really bitter botanical gin And mixing it in brine. a boot. Yeah, <laughs> it tasted like they mixed it in a boot—a very well used boot. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've had some decent gin, but also I'm not a massive fan of gin. But uh, I like some, gin straight. I think if it's mixed with other stuff, it's not so good. But it's when I they think, put tonic in it, that I can't stand it. I'm yeah, done. Yeah. Tonic, I'm out. Straight up straight gin. Is gin, great. I can, I can do that. Yeah, just like classic Mother's Ruin style. <laughs> classic 1890s. Are we showing how classy we are right now? Yeah, I just want straight gin, just like they used to do in the olden days. <laughs> Drinking on a on a park bench or on a step. Yeah, on outside a, on someone's a stoop. house. On a stoop. Yep. Outside a group of apartments on in old London town in the slums. Yeah. That's what I want to be doing. Yeah. Doing it real. <laughs> anyway, so this original martini, the first martini cocktail, that's actually the same sort of ingredients as the modern martini cocktail, is contested by two different hotels. They actually went to court over this. Uh, the Occidental or Occidental Hotel in San Francisco claims that they have a manual, or I mean, they've actually proven they do have a manual from 1887 that was written by the bartender, Jerry Thomas, and it has like the list of ingredients in the cocktail that he was making, and it included sweet vermouth Mm -hmm. and dry gin. So that's slightly different from some of the modern ones. And then there's another claim, actually, and this is weird, and this is why I think it's like a silly claim. I don't agree with it. I'm probably going to get hate mail if anyone from this city listens to this. (laughs) But the city of Martinez has disputed the claim and suggested that, in fact, the drink originated in a prominent bar in Martinez. They didn't say which bar in this article, just a bar. I'm like, well, that's good, isn't it? It's a good start for your your litigation. Apparently there it's known as the Martinez Special. I don't know if they're trying to suggest oh. like it's a Spanish martini, Martinez. Because like it's it, Martinez, so it's oh, martini. We no. invented it first because it's the Spanish version. No. But um, t- apparently the story goes that it was served to a gold miner who was celebrating on his way back to San Francisco. 
And once he got back to San Francisco, he loved it so much that he got the people at the bar in San Francisco to make it. And then they claimed that they invented it when actually it was this gold miner bringing the recipe from Martinez. That's what the people of Martinez I mean, it's claim. not the first time that that sort of tale has happened. I mean, we discussed this with the uh, creation of the Baja taco, so the fish taco. Yeah. Uh, we also discussed it with, what was something we were talking about the other day? It was like, yeah, oh, the um, carbonara. Yeah. As well. So it's like, no. So, and it's always miners. Or, well, actually, the taco <laughs> was like some surfer guy. But it's like some miner or something just has a good taste for, you know, fancy cocktails. It's apparently, they always do. They always do. And got they're rich. the ones who introduced it. They're like, oh, I made my, I made a lot of gold. Oh, make what? me something fancy. Oh, what? I'm going to share this with the world. That's it. Yeah, they, they're like, oh, I just struck gold. gold. <laughs> I want to blow my money. Did you like my gold miner voice? Yeah, that was, that was a very authentic gold miner voice. I thought so. I appreciated it. Mm. So, apparently, what happened was the San Francisco courts went, yep. The evidence is here. It's San Francisco. They invented it. And then some courthouse in Martinez down. went, no, nah, overruled, overturning <laughs> that. And then I don't know where the story went from there. It just was like, they went, no, we don't accept that. It's not true. It's like, well, of course, the courthouse in Martinez is going to overturn it and say it's theirs. Martinez don't really have a lot of claims to fame that I'm aware of. So they're like, it was a one chance. <laughs> Overturn it, Aww. please. So, yeah, who knows? But yes, so those were made with sweet vermouth and balanced out with craziness of gin. But the most famous, like the more modern cocktail, the dry martini, is made with dry white vermouth and dry gin. So it's super crazy dry right now, surely. Um, It's supposedly connected to the Knickerbocker Hotel in New York City. And it was invented sometime around 1911 or 1912. And supposedly, J.D. Rockefeller was a dude who used to like hanging mm, out there. Yeah, I've heard about that hotel. So he it's was very he was famous. That. Also, it's pretty definite the reason why it couldn't have been invented, invented much before then, like this modern dry martini, which is sort of like the standard martini cocktail these days. It couldn't have been invented before then because Martini, the company, didn't start making a dry martini until 1900. They'd uh-huh. just been making that Rosso, the red sweet martini, since like nineteen six, uh, since eighteen sixty eight, so or eighteen sixty three. Sorry, I can't remember. You go back and listen. I can't remember now. Eighteen sixties. Eighteen sixties. So yeah, there's no way that they could have been making the dry martini with martini. They could have been using a different vermouth, but it wouldn't have been called a martini because that would have been silly. Unless you're from Martinez, and apparently, then you can do what you want. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> So, yeah, that's the story of the martini cocktail. And, of course, from there, it just gained worldwide popularity through all these films. It's, Hem- it's one of the most famous cocktails in the yeah. world. Hemingway, of course, everyone. He drank oh, he everything. drank everything. Hemingway and a few others, they were drinking them, apparently. So, yeah, they just like, as with lots of these drinks, they just bounced off famous drunks. Yep. And went, all right, come on, drink this. Tell people you drink it. I'll give you 50 grand or whatever. Yeah. Or 50 pounds in those days. It's I like don't all know the actors gave. now doing all those crazy Japanese adverts. And they're just like, they learn the Japanese and they're like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Japanese whiskey. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Like, yep, make a lot of money. I love Japanese whiskey. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's all they say. Konnichiwa. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and that's, that's it. Yep. They, they did that in like four words. 50 grand. It's like, Probably I love more Japanese than that. whiskey. 
Uh, so yeah. Well, what, what, where was it? Like, okay, this is not even whiskey, but it's like um, in Romania, is it? Where there's all those billboards with Bruce Willis on it, and he's like, it's like some Bruce Willis drink. I don't know. There's these billboards everywhere with Bruce Willis's face on it, and he's obviously yeah got paid a fortune to support some. I think it was Romania. Or they just took images off the internet and that's, copied and pasted them over that brand names. Could happen. Because you know, I've seen that. Who knows? Who knows what people do? Definitely some countries do that. I don't know if they do it in Romania anymore. Now they're in the EU. Who knows? All right. Yeah, that's that's it for the cocktails. I wanted a, a quick little finish up bit about Spain because we were in Madrid drinking vermouth just a, a couple of months ago. And that's what inspired us to do an episode about vermouth because we discovered some really interesting artisanal vermouths. Yep. Straight up. No mixes. Definitely no mixes. Maybe a slice of orange on the corner. Mm. A bit of citrus on the side. In Spain, the first local vermouth production started in Reus, which is near Barcelona, sometime around the 1860s or early 1870s. So it makes a lot of sense. Turin is like the corner of Italy, right next to France, and just around France, past Monaco, and then you're down into Catalonia in the north of Spain, and then Barcelona. So it's like this tiny little arc. All of this production sort of started in the same sort of time zone within 100 years in the same region. Yeah. So it totally makes sense. All those miners moving about. Yeah, for sure. It was, the, it was the miners. Yeah. <laughs> must be it. All of these places made wine, so it just made sense for them to start making this as well. But it was actually in 1881 when Spain had a very big boost in domestic production for vermouth. This is because the King of Spain imposed new tariffs on imported products, meaning that all the French and Italian vermouth suddenly rose in price, leaving this gap in the market for domestic Spanish producers to easily undercut their international competitors. So that was it. They're like, all right, let's make loads of this now. Yep. So one of the, real, the biggest Spanish producers that still exists today, it's, gonna, it's a little hard to pronounce this one, is Zagieri. They were established in Reus in 1884, and they still make... Vermouth today. So, yeah, not everything in Spanish vermouth is 100% artisanal, tiny, tiny batches. But compared to like Italy's Martini, where that factory, they make 200,000 liters at a time. They go like, all right, let's make a batch this week. 200,000 liters, bottle it, send it out. 200,000 liters batches. Yeah. So that's a big factory producing big quantity every time. But with Spain, the producers are obviously not making anything near that big. And although there are some commercial producers, like the one that I just mentioned that is very hard to pronounce, there are lots of these little artisanal bars. And that's probably the most interesting part about going to Madrid in terms of vermouth, is going and discovering these little tiny bars. And yeah, it really became this tradition uh, in the bodegas, I know the word bodega is like corrupted all over the world to mean something slightly different. Like in the US, it's like a little corner store or something. That's what I think of a bodega. But bodega in Madrid, sort of in the 1860s, would refer to like a small tavern that uh. maybe had like a, a little bit of, of tapas going on as well. But they would be serving their blend directly from the barrel. They make up a barrel every week or whatever and just sell vermouth and then make up some more. Having in a little shot glass and away you go. And in Madrid, rather than being a aperitivo, like a pre-evening dinner drink, it's actually a pre-noon morning drink. So, Good morning, world. <laughs> yeah, you get up, you do a bit of whatever, and then like 11.30, you drop into the bodega and you get yourself some salty snacks and a vermouth. Well, I mean, it is the thing that we discovered with Spain, when also when we we're like in Barcelona as well, that the Spanish do like to do like this first and second breakfasts. Yeah. So this I mean, was, as much eating as drinking as possible all times uh, a day. Yeah, exactly. Sensible, right? But I think this sort of fits into second breakfast territory. Yeah. 
yeah, this would definitely be more of a post-breakfast, pre-lunch yeah. sort of thing. You'd, just lots of little meals, lots morning of little tea. meals and little drinks. You might call that morning tea. Just keep your buzz on all day long really is the deal, isn't it? I mean, that's it? how you have a great day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's how you did it. I mean, and in those days, fresh drinking water was still not really a thing. So you're either drinking coffee and tea or you just get started drinking booze at nine in the morning. Yep. And then second breakfast, you're on your vermouth. Why not? Why not? Exactly. So, yeah, we had some excellent vermouth in Madrid, which I liked very much because it wasn't quite as bitter. Still nice and herby, just a touch sweeter than the sort of Italian stuff that I'd tried before. So definitely a bit of a change. And yeah, so many little places to find. So you can go and check out our article for more things to eat in Madrid at foodfuntravel.com slash Madrid podcast. And there's like 25 things on there. And, you know, some vermouth suggestions and things like that as well. Yeah, I think Madrid is really definitely a city that's overlooked a lot when it comes to Spain. And I really enjoyed it. It was thoroughly delightful. Yeah, I, I love Madrid, but I suppose, yeah, Seville and Barcelona and Valencia and stuff maybe it's so are- so busy now. Yeah, So maybe yeah. give Madrid a try. Like, don't, don't just get in, get out if you're, or, you know, but you don't even have to get in, get out, even though it's the capital, like, because you can fly into so many of these other cities now. But give Madrid a try, because I thought it was really lovely. And actually, when I said on Facebook, I was like, this place is really lovely. And everyone's like, I thought Madrid was wonderful. Like, yep. everybody that I know has been there really enjoyed it. So. If you are going to Spain, give Madrid a try. Yeah. It's a lovely little place. Still plenty of tourists, but way less insane than Barcelona exactly. and Seville, which are just off the chart crazy all the time. All right. That's it for Vermouth. And that's it for episode 37, episode uh-huh. numbers. Hey. So, yeah. As we said at the start of the episode, support the show by subscribing, by downloading more episodes, by telling friends about it, and by leaving us a five-star review. Once we get some very amusing five-star reviews or interesting five-star reviews, we'll do a bit of a shout-out and read them out on the show. Yeah. So go leave us some five-star reviews. We don't follow every single platform, so if you're on a minor platform, we might not see your review. You can email it to us if you like and tell us where you left it, megzy at foodfuntravel.com. Yeah, send me a screenshot or whatever. Yeah. But we'll be checking out sort of comments and reviews on Podbean and also on Apple Podcasts periodically because we're Podbean people, but... Of course, we know a lot of people are on Apple Podcasts listening as well. Cool. So, yeah, catch us again in two weeks' time for episode 38, which we will be jumping into a completely different realm because we're going to talk about what to eat in Mongolia. Yes. So random. Totally different. And, uh, yeah, something to uh, not look forward to. (laughs) (laughs) In episode 38, we plan to talk about the more appetizing foods to eat in Mongolia. Yes. And then we'll be doing a follow-up of the less appetizing foods to eat in Mongolia, of which there are, there are a few. It's nothing gross like the tarantulas episode. It's just not appetizing. No, but I, we had some food that I quite liked. And hey, above all, it was yeah. interesting. Feed me dumplings and I'm a happy lady. Yeah, it was a very interesting place to eat, even if the food was not necessarily what you'd You'd ideally go for. No. Anyway. <laughs> We're underselling this episode so badly. No, but maybe they really want to listen because they're like, well, what is it then? It's going to be- What is it? It is going to be a curiosity, that's for sure, because it is an unusual and very misunderstood cuisine that is not famous around the world. Everything you thought you knew about Mongolian cuisine is wrong. almost certainly wrong because it's not, it's not true. Mongolian beef, good luck. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll see. You're here. You're here on episode 38. As you can tell, we were our little hearts were broken when it came to Mongolian things. All right, everybody. We'll catch you next time. 
Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.